I, I do a podcast. I'm not, I'm not interested in your podcast. The anathema of God was for those who denied justification by faith alone. When that is at stake, we need to be on the battlefield exposing the air and combating the air. We are unabashedly, unashamedly Clarkian. And so the next few statements that I'm going to make, I'm probably going to step on all of the Vantillian toes at the same time. And this is what we do at Simple Reform on the radio, you know, we are polemical and polarizing Jesus style. I would first say that to characterize what we do as fashion is itself fashion. It's not hate, it's history, it's not fashion, it's the Bible. Jesus said, Woe to you, and men speak well of you, for their fathers used to treat the false prophets in the same way, as opposed to, Blessed are you when you have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness. It is on. We're taking the gloves off. It's time to battle. All right. Welcome back, everybody. My name is Tim Shaughnessy, and you are listening to Semper Reformanda Radio. So I got to say this. We we are going to be getting back to our episodes on eschatology. There's so much more stuff to lay out, and, uh, and hopefully we can uh, get back to that within the next week or two. I'm really looking forward to that. I know that uh, some people have asked questions. And we are going to get to those questions. Uh, but lately, we've been talking a lot about uh, John Piper and this controversy that has ensued. And I found an article on the Trinity Foundation. I thought it was really good, and I wanted to read it. It's by J.C. Ryle. I'm not going to read the whole thing. I'm going to read an excerpt from it. But uh, J.C. Ryle writes, Is there more than one road to heaven? Is there more than one way in which the soul of a man can be saved? This is the question which I propose to consider in this paper, and I shall begin the consideration by quoting a text of Scripture. Quote, Neither is there salvation in any other, for there is none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. Close quote. Acts 4, verse 12. These words are striking in themselves. But they are much more striking if we observe when and by whom they were spoken. They were spoken by a poor and friendless Christian in the midst of a persecuting Jewish council. It was a grand confession of Christ. They were spoken by the lips of the Apostle Peter. This is the man who, a few weeks before, forsook Jesus and fled. This is the man who three times over denied his Lord. There is another spirit in him now. He stands up boldly before the priests and Sadducees and tells them the truth to their face. Quote, this is the stone that was set at naught of you builders, which has become the head of the corner. Neither is there salvation in any other, for there is none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. Close quote. First, let me explain the doctrine laid down by Peter. Let us make sure that we rightly understand what the apostle means. He says of Christ, quote, neither is there salvation in any other, close quote. Now what does this mean? 
On our clearly saying this very much depends. He means that no one can be saved from sin, its guilt, its power, its consequences, except by Jesus Christ. He means that no one can have peace with God the Father, obtain pardon in this world, and escape the wrath to come in the next, except through the atonement and mediation of Jesus Christ. In Christ alone, God's rich provision of salvation for sinners is treasured up. By Christ alone, God's abundant mercies come down from heaven to earth. Christ's blood alone can cleanse us. Christ's righteousness alone can clothe us. Christ's merit alone can give us a title to heaven. Jews and Gentiles, learned and unlearned, kings and poor, men all alike, must either be saved by the Lord Jesus or lost forever. I would encourage everybody out there to check out this article. I think it's really good. Only One Way of Salvation by J.C. Ryle on the Trinity Foundation. Um, but we are going to come back in just a few minutes after these commercials. Hang with us. This podcast is a member of the Bible Thumping Wingnut Network. All right, welcome everybody to another podcast episode with Semper Reformanda Radio. Hi, welcome to Theology Gals. Welcome everyone to the Logical Belief Ministries podcast. Well, welcome to the School of Biblical Hermeneutics. Welcome everybody to Grappling with Theology. What is going on, guys? Shiner's Lights coming at you. Well, welcome to Slick Answers. Good evening, and welcome to Conversations from the Port. Hello and welcome to Living in the Vine. This is the Council of Google Plus. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to the Bible Thumping Wingnut Podcast. The Bible Thumping Wingnut Network. Twelve podcasts, one network. Check them out at BibleThumpingWingnut.com. Looking for that perfect track for your next evangelism outreach? Look no further. At TrackedPlanet.com, we have solid biblical tracks that are a breeze to hand out. They are beautifully designed and are the highest quality tracks available. With over 80 different designs in stock and literally hundreds more available by custom order, we're sure to have just the right one for you. You can get any of our items printed with your church or ministry information or have us design a brand new tract just for you. We are committed to the solid biblical message of law to the proud and grace to the humble. Each tract is firm on the resurrection of Jesus Christ and the necessity of repentance and faith in salvation. Come check us out at TrackedPlanet.com and make sure you use coupon code BTWN at checkout for 10% off your entire order. That's TRACTPlanet.com, coupon code BTWN. All right, welcome back, everybody. So today we are going to we're going to play in a little bit. We're going to play a lecture from the Trinity Foundation, and I think it's a really good lecture. Um, if you go to the Trinity Foundation and you go to MP3 lectures, you'll you'll see this come up under 2004 Reformation Day Conference for lectures, and I guess they were just recently put up. I think all of the lectures are outstanding. The one that we're going to play today is number three on the list. It is the current justification controversy. And there's another podcast that I want to recommend to our listeners. I want to recommend Paul Flynn's podcast on the subject of uh, John Piper. It's episode number 281, John Piper's Corruption of the Gospel, the Megiddo Radio. 
Now, Paul Flynn, I think, did an outstanding job in this episode. And yes, I know that Paul Flynn was one of the individuals that criticized James White. We're not going to get into that. I, personally, I haven't had any time to evaluate the Brandon Howes, James White controversy. And I think that, that this has nothing to do with that. So let's not poison the well and just make it an ad hominem remark against uh, Paul Flynn. Uh, I'm sure he might disagree with us on things. We would probably disagree with him on some things. But pertaining to this episode of his podcast, I think he hit the nail on the head. He played a sermon by John Piper. He talked about the Norman Shepherd controversy. I thought it was excellent. He also wrote an article titled Desiring God and John Piper's Works, Final Salvation, and False Gospel. And I thought the article was outstanding. I think it's, uh, I, I definitely recommend that our listeners who are trying to follow the controversy, that you read that you read this article in addition to everything else that has been written. This article by Paul Flynn came out on the 23rd, so it's new, and that's why we want to make sure that our listeners uh, hear it. So, with that being said, I want to go ahead and play the lecture from the Trinity Foundation titled The Current Justification Controversy. I think it's important to know the history behind it, the key players, and what has gone on. This is something that, that started in the 1970s. So these views have been around for a long time, and I really believe that it's a rediscovery of Roman Catholicism. And as you know, in our podcast, we have declared war on Rome, especially uh, in light of the fact that so many people that we love are held captive by that false system that preaches a false gospel. So let's go ahead and play that. And I want to say thank you again. Be sure to listen. This is an excellent message. And we will check you guys next week. God bless. I invite you to turn with me to Galatians chapter 1. Galatians 1, reading from verse 6 through 9. Galatians 1, 6. I am amazed that you are so quickly deserting him who called you by the grace of Christ for a different gospel, which is really not another. Only there are some who are disturbing you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even though we or an angel from heaven, should preach to you a gospel contrary to that which we have preached to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so I say again now, that any man is preaching to you a gospel contrary to that which he received, let him be accursed. We're delighted also to have this service, Dr. Jeff Sheely from Grace Orthodox, no, Grace Presbyterian Church. Come, brother, and lead us in prayer. But thank you, Clinton. It's a pleasure to be here with all of you and to join in this celebration as we remember that great event of the 16th century, the Reformation, and to hear some great Bible teaching and to fellowship with one another and to meet many of you. Let us uh, join together now in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for this opportunity that we can be together and join together in fellowship 
and in the study of your word. And we thank you for the great doctrine of justification by grace through faith alone. We thank you for our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us, who came and humbled himself and took upon himself the form of a man and went to a cross for us. We who deserve the wrath and punishment of God and took our place out of love, out of such a great love when we deserve to suffer for our sins. And we rejoice in this gospel and we thank you for the gospel that you have given to us and the truth that has been imparted to your church. And we pray, as we have read, that we will be faithful to this gospel. And we realize that down through the ages how this gospel has been buried, how it has become obscure, and how the reformers themselves were so worried that there would be a day when the gospel would again become obscure. And how it has come to pass, their greatest fear. Oh Lord, we pray that you will keep us faithful. And we realize that it is not by our ability or our greatness. For we too are sinners. And we too could fall into the snare of the devil. Keep us humble. Keep us faithful to your word. Help us to be students of your word and to know the truth. And by your spirit, direct us to your word and help us to know your word and to read it and to study it. And as our brother has taught us, it is clear the teachings of your word as we can know them. And how important the doctrine of justification is. How it's central to the salvation of the souls of men. And how we must defend it and be faithful to it. Keep us faithful to it, our Father. Keep us from ever growing weary in defending this gospel that has been entrusted to us. We pray for this day that you will bless us as we gather that you will help us in our study tonight, that we will learn, and that you will impart to us zeal, that you will open our hearts to receive your word, that you will bless our brother as he comes and brings your word to us. We pray, Father, that we will be learners of your word and send us forth into this world as faithful servants to proclaim the truth of your word as ambassadors of our Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you for the churches that are here. And Father, we all face difficulties. We all have areas of concern and areas of weaknesses. But we come to you for our strength. 
And we pray that you will impart to us by your spirit that strength that we need to serve you faithfully. Bless us now, we pray. And grant to us power of the Holy Spirit that we might receive your word. And grant to us strength and energy and faithfulness to serve you and to be your witnesses wherever you call us. Thank you again for this time and for the blessing of this day and the blessing to be together as your people, for bringing us all here for this great opportunity that you set before us. For we pray in our sovereign Savior's name, our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. These are critical days in the history of Christ's church. False teachers and false teaching have crept into the Reformed Church. The very foundation of our Reformed faith is being threatened as the essential doctrine of justification by faith alone is being redefined and revised into a doctrine which includes works and baptism along with faith. Brethren, this is nothing less than a march back to Rome. The purpose of this conference is to reaffirm the faith of God's people in the Holy Scriptures and the central doctrine of the Reformation that is justification by faith alone, through grace alone, in Christ alone. Dr. Robbins, come now. Thank you. As I said during the first hour, I'm delighted to be here, and I want to apologize for those who couldn't hear last hour. I, I thought I was being too loud, but apparently not. Um, is there anybody that cannot hear now? Can you hear me in the back? Is that better? Okay, well, thank you to the men who fixed it then. Uh, this second hour um, is titled The Current Justification Controversy. Uh, the first hour that I talked was The Reformation Betrayed. And I'd like to begin the second hour by pointing out um, the wider picture, if I could. Uh, it's a complete misunderstanding of what has happened if we trace, if we were to trace everything back to Norman Shepherd at Westminster Seminary 30 years ago. Uh, there are other movements as well that have influenced uh, Reformed churches. Uh, one of them, which I'll talk about briefly in the next hour, is called the New Perspective on Paul. Now this is largely and until recently an academic movement. Uh, it was set forth by academics. E.P. Sanders is one of the principal lights of this movement. Teaches at Duke. And he first set forth this new perspective in 1977. The name that uh, is most well known now in connection with this movement, primarily due to the uh, publicity he's gotten from followers of Norman Shepherd is Nicholas Thomas Wright, uh, Bishop of Durham in the Anglican Church in England. He was just appointed by the Queen last year, I believe it was. The Anglican Church, as you know, is ruled by the Queen. 
and uh, <clears throat> he received that appointment. Uh, before then, he had been at Westminster Abbey. And he will be speaking in uh, three months in Monroe, Louisiana, under the auspices of the PCA church there, uh, Steve Wilkins, pastor, along with Dr. Richard B. Gaffin, Jr., who will also be speaking at that conference in January in Monroe, Louisiana. Those are the only two speakers. Ordinarily, they have three or four speakers for one of their conferences. I attended one about five years ago. And uh, this year, they're having just Dr. Gaffin and Dr. Dr. Wright. Dr. Wright is a prolific writer, uh, a very clever writer. Many of these men are very clever writers and very clever speakers. I don't want to demean their intellectual abilities and their rhetorical abilities at all. And we're, by underestimating them, we're, we're uh, undercutting ourselves, as it were. Um, they have been influential. There's another th movement uh, that is more popular than academic that has also contributed to the current justification controversy, and that's the movement known as Evangelicals and Catholics Together. Now, this movement started in the 1990s, in the early 1990s, when uh, Charles Colson, I'm sure that's a name you recognize, uh, and Richard John Newhouse, a former Lutheran who became a Roman Catholic priest, decided to get together along with their organizations, uh, Prison Fellowship and, and Newman's is, um, or, or Newhouse's is, the Institute on Religion and Public Life uh, to get together and issue some joint statements, have discussions and issue joint statements. And their first statement that came out was um, called Evangelicals and Catholics Together in 1994. Uh, they issued, they continued their discussions and issued uh, another statement in 1997 called The Gift of Salvation. And then I believe about three years later, they came out with a book uh, as well. I don't know if the discussions are still ongoing or not uh, with regard to Newhouse and Colson, but Colson has been very influential, uh, not just in Reformed churches, but in Southern Baptist. He is a Southern Baptist. I believe he's still a Southern Baptist. His wife is a Roman Catholic, uh, but I believe he remains a Southern Baptist. So he's had influence in many uh, Protestant sectors as well. In fact, uh, some people have re referred to him as the thinking man's Billy Graham or, um, you know, the, the sequel to Francis Schaeffer or something of that sort. Uh, so he's been very influential. And I want to read to you some of the things he says. Uh, this is Charles Colson, and um, I'm quoting his words. The pain and distrust between Catholics and Protestants goes back centuries. The church has often been plagued by wars within her walls, crippling her in her battle against the encroaching armies of secularism. But at root, those who are called of God, whether Catholic or Protestant, are part of the same body, that is, Christ's body. But they share as a belief in the basics the virgin birth, the deity of Christ, his bodily resurrection, his imminent return, and the authority of the infallible word. 
We also share the same mission, presenting Christ as Savior and Lord to a needy world. It's high time that all of us who are Christians come together, regardless of the differences of our confessions and our traditions, and make common cause to bring Christian values to bear in our society. When the barbarians are scaling the walls, there's no time for petty, petty quarreling in the camp. In his mind, in Colson's mind, the political um, impact that we must make on society transcends any differences in confession. So we're all members of one body anyway, Catholics and Protestants, so we all have to get together to make a political and a social statement. Uh, the church, he says, has been crippled by wars within her walls. We have these intramural wars between Catholics and Protestants. At one point in his works, he almost boasts that, that if a doctrine or if a document such as the gift of salvation or evangelicals and Catholics together had been around in the 16th century, the Reformation could have been avoided. Uh, this is what he is all about. It is obscuring the differences, all the differences, between Romanism and Christianity, not just on the doctrine of justification, which is, of course, central, but on everything that flows from it. They devoted one entire essay there to on the gift of salvation. Uh, in his book, The Body, has anyone read The Body? We have one who has read The Body. Well, I guess that's good in a way. <laughs> I thought perhaps many more people had read Colson's Body. Uh, but here's what he says in The Body, and the book sells. It was a bestseller. It was a bestseller for years. And this is what he says. He favors making the sign of the cross. Now, I've heard some horror stories recently about people who profess to be reformed, which Charles Colson doesn't, uh, favoring making the sign of the cross. He laments the lack of a Protestant magisterium, that is, a teaching authority in the church, which says what we say goes, just like the Roman church has the magisterium. He viciously attacks individualism and lone rangers and the entrepreneurial spirit, and which makes you wonder if he's ever read the Bible, because there you find God raising up individuals, prophets, uh, to call the nation, the rulers, the ecclesiastical religious leaders back to the faith. Uh, he favors private communion. Now, that seems to be uh, a legitimate form of individualism in his mind. <clears throat> he laments the fact that there's no monolithic church structure among Protestants. He admires the Roman Catholic monolithic structure. Uh, he laments the fact that Americans are free to choose the church that they attend. It's on page 41. If anybody wants to look these things up, I'll be glad to give you the citations. Um, he thinks that Americans, this freedom that Americans have, which we cherish, is somehow subversive of Christianity. He says that Catholics have made better, uh, or have better made visible the reality of worship, whatever that means. 
Uh, he uses the title Father throughout his books to refer to Roman priests, contradicting the Lord's command. Uh, he vigorously defends Mother Teresa's Christian commitment. Uh, he defends natural law. He praises Billy Graham for including Roman Catholic priests in his revivals. Uh, he says that he includes all denominations in the work of prison fellowship. And the head of prison fellowship, the operating head, is a Roman Catholic. He endorses so-called Catholic evangelicals. He asserts that, quote, the church is hierarchical and authoritarian and answerable only to God. He criticizes the Protestants who opposed John Kennedy's election in 1960 as bigots. He, he implies that anti-abortion activism is more important than a correct understanding of the doctrine of justification. He praises the Catholic Church for calling heretics to account. That's his phrase, calling heretics to account. And he believes that the current Pope, John Paul the 23rd, I guess it is, no, John Paul II, um, is one of the most articulate defenders of democratic capitalism. I wrote a book on Roman Catholic social thought. And if you think that uh, the Roman Catholic Church favors democratic capitalism or that this Pope favors democratic capitalism, you simply haven't done your homework. Uh, the Roman Church for centuries has taught a variety of fascism. Uh, Hitler's Führer Prinzip is learned from the doctrine of the papacy. You follow the leader blindly. And the leader cannot be tied down by doctrine or councils or anything superior to him. Uh, Hitler learned a great deal from the Roman Church, even about such things as staging processions. And if you watch old newsreels of the Nazis operating in Germany uh, in the 1930s, you see how much they learned. The torchlight, the candlelight, the processions, the banners. They learned all of that from Rome. Uh, Hitler was never excommunicated from the Roman Church. So anybody who thinks that the Roman Church favors democratic capitalism simply hasn't done his homework. Well, that is one of the um, <clears throat> movements broader than uh, Norman Shepard, as it were, um, that is important in understanding the current justification controversy. Who signed these documents? Well, if I read you the list of the Roman Catholic signers, they might not mean anything to you. But if I read you some of the Protestant signers, the evangelical signers, you might recognize a few names. Bill Bright, founder and chairman of Campus Crusade for Christ. Harold O.J. Brown, at the time he was a professor at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School. I think he's now affiliated with Reformed in Charlotte, if I have that correct. Uh, Timothy George of the Beeson Divinity School down in Alabama. Os Guinness of the Trinity Forum in Arlington, Virginia. Os Guinness, of course, is famous for his connection to Francis Schaeffer. Uh, Kent Hill of Eastern Nazarene College. Richard Land of uh, the Southern Baptist Convention. And Max Lucado, uh, the best-selling author. 
uh, T.M. Moore of the Presbyterian Church in America, president of Chesapeake Theological Seminary. Richard Mao, president of Fuller Seminary. Mark Knoll, professor of history at Wheaton College. And he was, and I believe he still may be, in the Orthodox Presbyterian Church. Um, Thomas Oden of Drew University. James I. Packer, better known as J.I. Packer, signed it. Uh, I once witnessed a horrible spectacle at a meeting of the Evangelical Theological Society in which they had a debate on evangelicals and Catholics together, particularly on the doctrine of justification. And on one side of that debate was J.I. Packer and a representative of the Pope, the John Paul II Cultural Center in Washington, D.C. And the other side, all by himself, was Robert Godfrey of Westminster Seminary West. Uh, why the debate was set up like that, I don't know. But there you had Godfrey attempting and doing a valiant job in doing so to defend the doctrine of justification by faith against J.I. Packer and the representative of the Pope. It was a travesty to witness that. And you had men standing up in the audience who ought to know better and criticizing Dr. Godfrey for what he was doing. I have my differences with Westminster Seminary. I have fewer differences with Westminster West than I do with Westminster East. But there's nothing but praise to be said for Dr. Godfrey for what he did at that meeting three years ago before the Evangelical Theological Society. J.I. Packer has been one of the principal movers, one of the drafters, one of the writers of these documents. Yet he is regarded as a reformed theologian. Uh, Robert Seipel, president of World Vision, uh, was another signer. Uh, Timothy Phillips, a professor at Wheaton College. Uh, John Woodbridge, a professor at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School. Uh, you might even recognize a few of the Roman Catholic names. Peter Craft of Boston College. He used to be Christian reformed. He converted to Roman Catholicism. Uh, Avery Dulles, used to teach at Fordham, recently made Cardinal. Uh, he's Avery Cardinal Dulles now, uh, by the Pope. And there are a few others, Michael Novak, uh, you might recognize that name as well, among the signers. So this movement against justification is much wider than just Norman Shepard. He is a major factor, a major player in Reformed churches, but... The devil has stirred up this anti-gospel movement in other ways as well. Now, going on <laughs> to a little bit, let's talk about uh, the third fellow I mentioned, which is N.T. Wright. Um, N.T. Wright, again, has impeccable academic credentials. He is an Anglican, as I mentioned. He's Bishop of Durham. He'll be speaking in Monroe, Louisiana, if you have any desire to go, in January, first week of January, with, with Dr. Gaffin. Uh, what does N.T. Wright teach? Well, he teaches a number of things. Um, I'm plowing my way through his books, and he writes fat books. He writes a lot of skinny ones, too, but he writes fat books. And um, he, he sets forth the idea that the reformers misunderstood 
the gospel altogether. They misunderstood what Judaism was like in the first century. And because they misunderstood that, they misunderstood the point that Paul was making when he wrote Romans. And consequently, for 500 years almost, the Protestants have misunderstood New Testament theology. Uh, N.T. Wright published a book called What St. Paul Really Said, because he, not alone, but he's one of the few that have understood what St. Paul really said. The rest of us have no idea what St. Paul said. So he actually titles his book, What St. Paul Really Said. And what St. Paul really said was, the gospel is a political message. Now, one of the themes you find running through this movement is this obsession with politics, this obsession with society. Sometimes it takes the form of obsession with the church. In other cases, in, in uh, Colson's case, it takes the form of cultural obsession. It becomes a social gospel, a new form of a social gospel. And he said because the reformers misunderstood first century Judaism, they usually call it second temple Judaism, but because they misunderstood that, uh, they misunderstood what Paul was talking about. And the gospel is not about justification by faith alone. It's not about any scheme of salvation, to use N.T. Wright's phrase. It's about politics. It is a political message at its heart. He says, we're not saying that there are impl political implications of the gospel. He says that it is a political message at its heart. That is what he says. Any Christian would agree that the gospel has political implications. I've written a little book called Christ and Civilization in which I argue that what we call Western civilization is a unintended byproduct of the preaching of the gospel. Not unintended by God, he intended it. But unintended by Martin Luther, John Calvin. What we call Western civilization. So the gospel has political implications. But Wright denies that. He says it's political at its heart. It's not merely that it has political implications. But what does he teach? He denies the infallibility of Scripture. He denies the inerrancy of Scripture. Um, this is not unusual for an Anglican. Uh, that's his fundamental error. I think it was J.C. Ryle, that, an Anglican of the 19th century, who commented once that the root of all error is ignorance of Scripture. And that's absolutely correct. The root of all error is ignorance of Scripture. And N.T. Wright denies the infallibility, the inerrancy of Scripture. It's generally reliable. In fact, he will defend the crucifixion and the resurrection of Christ against more liberal Anglicans. But as far as saying that it's inerrant or infallible, no. He denies that. Uh, he denies the imputation of Christ's righteousness uh, explicitly. He denies the imputation of Christ's righteousness. That is not what justification is about. Justification is not about being saved. It's how you tell someone has been saved, he says. Well, I'm not sure I follow that statement, because that would make justification visible or at least audible, if it's how we tell whether someone's been saved. 
but justification, as Dr. Foraker read from the confession of, from the catechism this morning, it's an act of God. It's not something that is a mark of a Christian. Well, he says it's, <clears throat> there's no imputation of Christ's righteousness. In fact, uh, Christ's righteousness we misunderstand altogether. He says it's not like a substance or a gas that can be passed around the room. And to think of it as if it were is to misunderstand it altogether. <clears throat> he says we're justified because we're in the church. We're justified because we're in the church. We're justified because of what God does in us and to us in baptism. Now you can see why men like Douglas Wilson and Steve Slissel would seize upon this fellow. Because he is reinforcement for what they're saying. I have no idea that they read N.T. Wright ten years ago. I don't think they did. But someone called N.T. Wright to their uh, attention. And they have seized upon him as arriving, as it were, independently at the same conclusions that they have. And so they invite him to speak at their pastor's conferences uh, down in Louisiana. He says, <clears throat> among other things, that uh, there is no purgatory. In fact, you can read his little book on, it's called For All the Saints. It's one of the Finn Wright books. Uh, it's called uh, For All the Saints. And, you know, it almost sounds Christian on certain pages. You can agree with sentences in him, you can agree with paragraphs, even some pages in that book. Um, because he denies purgatory. And he even castigates those Anglicans who believe in purgatory. All of which is good. He also denies hell. He gets rid of purgatory and he gets rid of hell. He says, we have only conditional immortality. And if we believe in Christ, whatever that means, then we will be raised from the dead. If we don't believe, we won't be. So he's an annihilationist uh, in that sense. But in either case, there's, there's no hell. No, no human being is in hell. They're either raised to the resurrection life, uh, or they're not raised because they don't believe. They're simply annihilated. Um, <clears throat> so even when he says some good things, such as there's no purgatory, uh, he can't resist, as it were, going on and saying there's no hell either. Uh, and he throws out both of those ideas. Imputation, he describes, the imputation of the righteousness of Christ as, quote, a cold piece of business. Now, this is, this is an, another interesting thing about this movement. Dr. Foraker mentioned this morning the Greek that Christ spoke, or the Aramaic when Christ spoke when he said it is finished. And he said that was a commercial or a business phrase. That this, this is done. This is over. It is finished. And if you read uh, the New Testament, you see this uh, idea of a commercial or a business transaction, this idea of also of a legal transaction, as being the controlling uh, words for understanding imputation. 
It's credited to our account, the righteousness of Christ. But these people are so anti-business and anti-commerce that they reject this. And they say, no, God doesn't deal with his children like this. He deals with them as a father. And what father deals with his children uh, like a business? Well, I've been a father for three times, and I dealt with every one of my children that way. I would offer them rewards for doing certain chores. And if they didn't do the chores, they didn't get the reward. To say that somehow the God doesn't deal with his children on a legal basis or on a commercial basis is simply to misunderstand the doctrine of salvation altogether. Of course, N.T. Wright is a socialist. It's probably hard to find somebody in England who's not. But this, this antipathy for business, for commerce, uh, has some effect on his theology as well. And he rejects this idea. He says imputation is a cold piece of business. And uh, it's not found in Scripture. Rather, we're in vital union and communion with Christ. And if you know or have read the works of Norman Shepherd or Richard Gaffin, you'll find that that's what they talk about as well. Um, well, that is... Uh, the view of N.T. Wright uh, in a nutshell and he is one of the other major factors outside uh, of uh, Norman Shepard. Well, let's turn finally to, uh, as Paul put it, uh, men who have risen up among us. Uh, not those outside our circles like Chuck Colson or N.T. Wright, but those who have risen up among us to speak perverse things. And I want to start by giving you a quote that um, Gresham Nation made in 1924. Now, at the time, he's professor of New Testament at Princeton. He's in the old PCUSA. And in 1923, he had just published his book, Christianity and Liberalism. If you haven't read it, well, please go home and read it. Uh, get a copy and read Christianity and Liberalism. This is what he said at the time, 1924. The plain fact is that two mutually exclusive religions are being proclaimed in the pulpit of the Presbyterian Church. The plain fact is that two mutually exclusive religions are being proclaimed in the pulpits of the Presbyterian Church. Now I'll suggest today that's the plain fact today. Two mutually exclusive religions are being proclaimed in the pulpits of the Presbyterian Churches. And I don't mean uh, the PCUSA. I mean the churches that profess to be conservative and reformed. On the one hand, and if we have time, I hope we can, we don't have time, but uh, maybe I can get a few of the points in. On the one hand, we have the doctrine, the new doctrine that is being taught is because of the infinite gulf between creator and creature, Man cannot think God's thoughts. And on the other hand, we have the idea, by propositional revelation, God has communicated his thoughts to his people for their understanding, belief, and guidance. 
Those are two mutually exclusive ideas. On the one hand, because of the infinite gulf between the creator and the creature, man cannot think God's thoughts. He can think something like his thoughts. He can think something approximate to his thoughts. He can think something analogous to his thoughts. But as far as thinking God's thoughts, no. He can't think God's thoughts. And on the other hand, in Scripture, God has communicated his thoughts to his people for their understanding, belief, and guidance. We read John 17 last hour. I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them. Which side does Christianity fall on? Second, human language cannot accurately or adequately express divine truth. That's the new religion. Human language cannot adequately or accurately express divine truth. The Christian view found in Scripture is that human language is a gift of God to man, done at the time of the creation, and it can and does adequately and accurately express divine truth. God gave man language so that he might understand God and that he might speak to God. It is a function of the image of God, language. And to deny the adequacy and accuracy of human language is to attack the image of God in man. All language about God is metaphorical. This is the new view. We read this from Bobbing. All language about God is metaphorical. What's the Christian view? God's revelation is literally true. Now, this doesn't mean there aren't figures of speech in Scripture, but it means there is little truth in Scripture. So when God says that the world is created in six days, that's what it means. And when, it's, when the Scripture says that Christ was crucified on the cross and rose three days later, that's what it means. These are literal truths. These are not metaphors. These are not figures of speech. They're literally true. The new religion is God's logic is different from human logic. The Christian view is logic is the image of God and man. God's logic is man's logic, for there is only one logic. Read the first chapter of John. The Logos lights every man who comes into the world. Every man. That's what John says. The Logos likes every man. There aren't multiple logics. That was one of the doctrines of Karl Marx. The different uh, classes of society have different logics. In theology, it's the notion that God's logic is somehow different from man's logic. So that if man thinks 2 plus 2 is 4, God thinks 2 plus 2 is 4.7. No. Uh, please go to our website and read the essay, Math in the Bible. There you'll find exactly how much arithmetic, for example, can be found in Scripture. Sometimes people look at me skeptically when I say that, but then I facetiously remind them we have an entire book called Numbers. <laughs> But there you find in Scripture 
and there are many examples of addition, subtraction, multiplication, division in Scripture. All given by inspiration of God for our understanding. God's arithmetic is the same as our arithmetic. God's logic is the same as our logic. That's why we can understand his revelation. It's called the image of God. Uh, we read the statement from Bob Inc., the finite cannot grasp the infinite. That's the new view, the medieval view. And the Christian view is precisely because he is all-powerful and all-knowing. God can and has revealed himself to men so that they can understand him. Precisely because he is all-powerful and all-knowing. God can and has revealed himself to men so that they can understand him. Uh, the new view is knowledge is not necessary for salvation. They attack those who say this as Gnostics. Now, either they know what the word Gnostic means or they don't know. If they don't know, they shouldn't be using it. If they do know, then this is just a smear. Because this has nothing to do with what was historically called Gnosticism. The Christian view is that salvation is, quote, coming to the knowledge of the truth about the person and work of Jesus Christ. Coming to the knowledge of the truth is how Scripture defines salvation. It's coming to the knowledge of the truth. And again, get out your concordances or look up your, on your computer the word knowledge. Go in and look up gnosis and epinosis. And there you'll see the emphasis of Scripture on knowledge. And it's how it is essential in salvation. Uh, the new view is that faith is not assent to propositions. It's not agreeing to propositions. The Christian view is that faith is assent to propositions revealed in Scripture. That's the Christian view. In the, in the new view, faith is obedience in this Norman Shepherd theology. Faith and works are identical. Um, Robertson, Palmer Robertson, makes that point in his discussion of the Norman Shepherd controversy. It was because Norman Shepherd redefined faith that he could say all through the controversy that he believed in justification by faith alone. And you ask him what faith was. Well, faith includes obedience. Faith includes works. This redefinition of faith from belief to doing. From believing to doing is essential to this new theology. Um, faith alone justifies. This is one of the old, uh, this is one of the uh, new theology principles. Since faith includes obedience. Well, the Christian view is that belief alone justifies apart from works. And if you read uh, Romans 4, you'll see that phrase appear many times, apart from works, apart from works. Uh, the old view, or the new view, I'm getting them confused, the new theology is there's no covenant of works with Adam. The Christian view, as summarized in the Westminster Confession, is that the way of salvation has always been by perfect obedience to the law of God. And there's only one man who has ever provided that perfect obedience, and that man is Jesus Christ. Out of all the thousands of years of human history, God is pleased with 33. And unless we believe in Christ and his work, we have no hope. Because 
the new theology says, because there's no covenant of works, Christ did not earn the salvation of his people, but he was himself saved. And they actually teach that Christ was redeemed. Christ was saved. And it's, we participate in his salvation through union with him, and that's what saves us. The Christian view is, of course, that Christ merited the salvation of his people by his perfect life and obedient death, and Christ himself did not need salvation and was not saved from sin. The New Theology says that Christ's righteousness is not imputed to believers. They're saved by union with him and possess all that he is in the inner man. The Christian view is that Christ's righteousness is imputed to believers through faith alone. And it is the basis of their standing with God. Uh, the new theology says that saving union with Christ occurs at baptism. Ritual baptism. Christian theology says saving union with Christ occurs through faith at the first moment of believing. The old or the new theology says the elect are the baptized. Christian theology says the elect are those for whom Christ died. And each one of them is given the gift of faith. The new theology says the Christian can lose his election his justification, and his salvation. And they rely in particular on John 15 and the, and the metaphors in that chapter. The Christian view is that election and salvation are irrevocable. They are given irrevocably by God. The new theology is that the final justification of Christians depends on their lifelong performance. The Christian theology is the final justification of sinners occurs at the moment of first belief and depends solely on the righteousness of Christ. The new theology says that God accepts our faithfulness, our imperfect obedience as partial ground or instrument of our justification. Christian theology says the sole ground of our justification is the righteousness of Christ. The sole instrument of our justification is belief of the gospel. The new theology says the covenant of grace is made with all the baptized. Christian theology says the covenant of grace is made with the elect. The new theology says good works are necessary to retain our justification. We're justified, we enter the covenant by baptism, but to stay in the covenant and to stay justified, we have to perform. Christian theology says believers are irrevocably justified, apart from all works. The new theology says that biblical theology is superior to systematic theology. Christian theology says that systematic theology is chronologically and logically prior to biblical theology. The new theology says uh, in justification, law is in grace and grace is in law. And Christian theology says in justification, there is an antithesis between law and grace.
And that antithesis is very clear in many of the passages that we read here just this afternoon, and especially in the passages we read this morning. Uh, to quote Machen again, there are two mutually exclusive religions being preached in Presbyterian pulpits today. And it's a disservice if we try to ignore those differences, if we try to cover them up, if we try to just explain them as misunderstandings. Uh, Norman Shepard, I'll return to him in just this closing remark. He has been remonstrated for his views for 30 years. He has plenty, has had plenty of time to change his mind. Uh, he has had plenty of time to make his views clear if people have misunderstood him. But what is becoming clear is that those who criticized him first 30 years ago have been right all along. That he is teaching another gospel. He Lately he has explicitly denied not just the covenant of works, but the imputation of the righteousness of Christ. And the apostolic curse, the divine curse of Galatians that you read in Galatians 1, falls on those who teach another gospel, which is not the gospel. Well, let's take a break at this point, and then we'll come back. Uh, we'll take, uh, I guess, a 10-minute break or so, and then we'll come back and take questions. <laughs>